more people than ever are finding the faith that they grew up with to be at odds with their own experience of the world. Instead of seeing everything in black and white, they encounter a world that is more complicated, more gray, more filled with anger and love than they ever thought possible. Many find that the answers their faith communities give to make sense of their experience are insufficient at best or hostile at worst. Many others are discouraged from asking questions altogether. They were told that their questions are a sign of doubt, and doubt was the same as unbelief. They were told that you either believed it with every fiber of your being, or you were an unbeliever to your core. They were told that their status as part of the community was predicated on upholding a list of very specific beliefs, and that those who believed even a little bit different were blasphemers, heretics, or simply misguided. They were told they needed to be certain, just like everyone else was certain. What they were not told is the diversity of belief in the history of their own tradition. Some were told they would never belong. Many were told that they have no inherent worth. Wretched from birth that they were sinners in the hands of an angry God. As if they were living thousands of years ago, they were told to fear the divine out there. They were never told to look for the divine right here. As a result, many have deconstructed the structures of belief they once thought to be the bedrock of their lives. Some entirely, some in part. We can relate. We were told these things, and we are all in a process of deconstruction and reconstruction. Right now, we don't have all the answers. We're just trying to figure this whole thing out. We have very little formal training. All we really have is our experience. Our experience of life, our experience of learning, our experience of a divine love that we cannot put fully into words, our experience of others. We've also experienced carrying a weight, a heavy weight, that says this world is lost. It cannot be saved. Retributive justice and redemptive violence will save those who believe in it, but it will not save creation. Creation is already lost forever. So get your ticket out. We no longer carry this weight. We found that divine love couldn't be contained. Whatever you think it is, it's bigger than that, deeper and wider. We found that there is more to learn and more to love in the world than any of us could know. And each one of us only sees in part. And so we come together to learn and live and laugh and love. And what we've discovered so far is that the more you uncover, the more you realize how little you are certain of, and the more you realize how much is really out there. Or to put it another way, the more you know, the less you know. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for checking us out. My name is Benjamin, or just Ben. Hey, guys, this is Devin. And this is Will. Hey, oh, it's Andy. And we'll be your hosts. We're going to dive right in. Hope you enjoy. All right. Yeah. So, talk, so here we go. Are we talking we, about mysticism? Episode one. Mysticism. Take one. Mysticism. It got so quiet. Yeah. <laughs> it got real. I'd like to be the first to admit that there was good, I was going to do a lot more like research and studying about how it affected my life. 
How Wait, do you research? Gonna, yeah, I have the same question after heard. you. No, go ahead. Take it away, sir. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to let you do this. Because it's, it's, it's not nice. <laughs> How do you research your own experience again? Well, I just didn't want to... I wanted to put mysticism, at least for me, like in a good... Like give it a good definition, give it a good context to... Mm. Instead of just kind of shooting off and just being like... It means whatever I think it means, you know, it's kind of a thing. And then I forgot to do that. Gotcha. Yeah. And then I've, yeah. So I kind of thought we could start with just kind of the story behind the podcast, like what brought us to this very small storage closet. (laughs) (laughs) How, how did you find yourself in the closet? (laughs) Well, I was at church and I felt that the best place to be was in the closet. Yep. That's really um, funny. Thank you. It's not. It's a terrible experience for thousands of Americans. <laughs> I'm glad we're laughing about it right now. <laughs> okay, this whole thing started with Andy asking a question that I didn't have an answer to. And then, Will, I think I, I think you and I started going out to the uh, bar yeah on thursday nights yeah um and just kind of talking about stuff and then it was like i think Devin would really enjoy this and i I was like i really want to bring in andy in but i don't know if he'd be interested and then the first time that all four of us got together and we started talking i left and i was like oh man i have no idea what our conversations have in common like we were in just such different places. So I, I, I left and then I, I came back with some questions, like some very basic questions, which are actually several of the episodes of yeah. season one, just to kind of lay some groundwork. And that became really, I don't know, I guess enlightening to me to hear everyone's perspective. And I thought it was really, really cool and really interesting. And that's kind of how I guess the group got together. But I don't know, over does anyone want to speak to kind of over time? what it's become yeah like just, i mean yeah i kind of want to correct uh some of the things that you said that i think were blatant lies uh sure. number one you didn't have simple questions <laughs> like you started off and you're like the genocide in the old testament go <laughs> so there were it was not a simple or light question it was very like straight into it the other part is not a correction of you at all it was i had no idea what the conversations actually were. So I went into it thinking like, oh, we're just going to have theological discussions, not this is where I actually am discussions. So I'm in there arguing Bible rhetoric with Andy and at one point and and you at one point. And these guys are like, man, you're really orthodox, Devin. I was like, oh, I mean, I still am apparently, but I was like, oh, I thought we were talking just about the Bible, not our views on it. Which is interesting that those things aren't necessarily the same. Thing. I was gonna, I was going to say I was like it's interesting that there's a distinction. You're like I I I have no desire in like just going to groups of people and talking to them about the Bible just as it is. Well, yeah. I mean not even that's a there's a lot there, but. <clears throat> Well, no, I thought it was about just our interpretation of certain things or, you know, hey, this is what the Bible says about these things. And so I remember one time distinctively arguing about what the scripture says about it. But whenever I look at how I apply that to my normal life, my interpretation doesn't even really hinge on that. So talking about some of the more controversial things, because I lean towards 
love and grace. And so whether or not something is right or wrong, sin or not sin, it's really kind of takes a backseat for me personally to like the aspect of grace. But I was sitting there like arguing these points like, no, this is not the thing. And uh, then I realized a few weeks later, like, oh, we're supposed to just be honest about our feelings. (laughs) (laughs) I think part of, so I think definitely Ben actually taking the initiative and asking the questions and bringing people together was definitely the beginning of it. But further back for me is once I stopped feeling alone in an immediate kind of context. So I remember Andy, there was one morning where we were at church and you were doing communion you had quoted, well, I don't know if you intentionally were doing it, but you were. Mm-hmm. Okay. You had quoted Glennon Doyle, and I was like, wait, I just heard her say that on an episode of the Deconstructionist podcast, which I think at that time I kind of assumed was a dirty word in church circles. D, the, the D word, the deconstruct. And I remember thinking, wait, Andy, if he's thinking very differently about communion, then maybe there's something there because I thought I was the only one. And I think I came up later and I was like, hey, hey, where'd you hear that? Where'd you get those words? Are those your words? They don't sound like your words. Like you have good words, but. Oh, no, definitely. I, I think I remember you also saying, I think I have a podcast you might like, but don't be freaked out by the name. Right, it's yeah. a deconstructionist. And I was like, bro, I'm way down that <laughs> rabbit trail. <laughs> so yeah, no, totally. That, that, that sense of not being alone. I think that's been the biggest relief to me as well. I mean, just enjoying the friendship and just knowing that there are other people who are sharing similar experiences. And I mean, I think honestly, that's obviously the goal with the podcast is to create something where people can feel less alone. People can understand that their questions belong, that their doubts belong. And there's a sense of safety and and love that doesn't have a prerequisite of a list of beliefs or, you know, yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's definitely like my experience as well is that it, even it, you know, for me, it grew into like, oh, it's cool to talk about these things that I've always felt uncomfortable talking about in church, or even that certain churches have asked me not to speak anymore, or don't ask any more questions, or maybe you shouldn't attend here anymore if these are the questions that you're going to bring to the table. So for me, it was cool whenever I finally made the discovery of like, oh, we can just be honest and open. This is so exciting. I don't just have to talk about the rightness of scripture and talk about what this is what it says, and I don't have to defend certain things that I'd find indefensible or I don't have to explain away or or have a perfect paper trail or, or follow the idea that scripture is 100% inerrant. So yeah, so it was really freeing to be able to listen and talk and it's still funny because I still find a lot of times that I am the more, so I fall on the more orthodox side of the uh, group of our friends, which is really weird for me because I've always been like too liberal for churches where they're like, for real, stop talking and stop like, like please don't say anything else in Sunday school. Um, and then like to be here where it's like, I'm the least liberal. <laughs> it's like, this is weird for very different reasons that I've never experienced. And it was just really cool to be able to like 
like you were saying, just have an open conversation and it's just safe to ask questions. And so to me, that's kind of, again, what Andy was saying that like, this is what the podcast is for me is making a safe space for people to journey, to ask questions, to have curiosity and to know that not only is it okay, but it's good. It's healthy. Yeah. Cool. Um, Will, when we had started talking about this, you had brought up something just like how this whole group had made you feel. Mm. And we were talking about what a, what a podcast would be, what it would look like, what is some of the language around it. And you had said this whole thing has felt a little bit like coming home. Mm. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little uh, bit at all. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like in a lot of ways, when you start you know doubting some of the presuppositions on which you make your money, as <laughs> I used to... I'm sure this will get filled in at some point, but I used to be in church leadership in the past. Um, when you start to doubt a lot of those things, it's a very disorienting experience, and I'm sure that anybody listening is at least somewhat familiar with that. And so you start to feel estranged maybe from the, at least I began to feel estranged from the people that I kind of imagined put me in this position, like mentors from college, uh, like other classmates that I was influenced and influencing and you know, kind of discovering that at least from my group back home, when I, where I grew up in Illinois, like this was not occurring at all. So I just kind of felt adrift with the questions, with not really an outlet. I was taking in a lot of information, trying to get maybe a better idea of where to take my questions and where to keep exploring those doubts, like what to keep and like what to get rid of. But there was no way of externalizing that for me outside of reflecting and meditating, you know, writing about it and I would find that it would manifest in weird ways in my uh in a lot of my master's work I would just I would just find these, like, these weird quips in research papers I was writing and I was like oh this is probably academically is probably not the right place for me to start like processing this and to actually have a group of people that felt safe with a lot of these questions like hey you know most of the time I feel like I don't believe in God which is not necessarily even something that I worry about anymore, but just having the idea of God shift so much is a very, I think, scary thing for a lot of people. And to find people that are like, yeah, yeah, your, your beliefs change and it's good. That felt like coming home to like, there was all of a sudden a group where I felt safe. So that's, that's the whole coming home thing for me. Cool. Yeah. There was a, uh, one of the other things that you said, Will, that resonated with me. Like I knew it struck me at the moment, but I found that days and even weeks after you were talking about how through this journey, you were never uncomfortable with these questions or with these doubts. It was with the belief that other people around you would be uncomfortable with mm-hmm. it. And that's where that discomfort came from. It was like this self-imposed discomfort based on a concern of everyone around. And whenever you said that, it resonated so much with me because it was just, for me, it's, it's very much the same thing. You know, growing up in the South, growing up with a mom who took me to church, uh, you know, every Sunday, I always felt like an outsider. You know, I was too Christian for my secular friends and too secular for my church. And so it was always really uncomfortable because I always felt like I was chasing after this clique or this group that didn't really want me and that I didn't really necessarily want to be a part of. And I definitely didn't fit in with, but I was chasing after it and getting to this place of journeying and processing and turning over things and stuff like that has helped me to be like, oh, it's... 
it's the concern that I had about other people's perception. That's where the discomfort was coming. That's where the external pressure was coming from. And hearing you say that from whenever I heard it, it, it very much had a very freeing perspective of like, oh no, it's cool to just be me. And so I've had a very similar experience where I really enjoy being able to like just come here and share these things because it's finding comfort with what was going on inside of you. To me, it's almost a more honest way to view how we were made to be. More honestly looking at ourselves and saying, no, this isn't bad. There's, there's good stuff here. All right, let's talk about the name a little bit of the podcast, uh, Lonely Mountain Mystics. Um, if the name is at least in part inspired by uh, Tolkien, then I think that you should take us all on a journey. <laughs> and, uh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So the Lonely Mountain, uh, the Tolkien reference is not lost on me as I don't think it's lost on any of us. So that's pretty great. Um, or anybody except for Devin, it. it's a little lost on Devin. Or that's anybody okay. that's like heard of books. Yeah, we love them anyway. <laughs> or anyone that's heard of books. <laughs> I'm the dumb one. <laughs> Continue on. So Lonely Mountain, but it also refers to a mountain called Manadnock, which is kind of near where we all live. And the name means in the original language, it means where the mountain stands alone or the Lonely Mountain. And so tying it to a place kind of where we are, and it's it's actually a place that has a lot of spiritual significance historically. Felt like kind of the right thing to do. And then Mystics, Lonely Mountain Mystics, I picked solely for the alliteration, but it actually turned out to be incredibly appropriate, I think. Yeah, oh, I, I love it. Yeah, so full disclosure, the alliteration is, is what made it work in my mind. <laughs> this is the first time I'm hearing Same. about this. <laughs> yep. Um, I'm so excited about this. This is so good. (laughs) Extra storage closet confession. Devin didn't even actually know what we were doing. (laughs) Like, hey, Devin, we're going to get together. Instead of going to the bar, we're going to talk in a closet. All right? Sounds good. You're going to have a microphone. It'll be great. Oh, man. So, yeah, I I just... um, the, The term, though, has come to, even over the last several months, come to mean something, I think, really special. But I'd like to hear kind of what you guys all... I'll think about that and what it's meant to you kind of in your, your journey over the last even year as we've been kind of getting together and, and talking like this. Yeah. So I first want to confess that I historically am not going to, I don't have a proper framing of mysticism and what that all really means to be a Christian mystic as far as how you put that in context in the history. I'm still learning about that. But for me, it kind of mysticism was almost like a almost it's permission to not know something for sure but to still be interested in it you know what I mean as a starting point I felt like it it was when I was reaching a point where my Christianity as I understood it couldn't keep going for me and but there were things about it that were important to me and beautiful and helpful that I didn't want to lose, but I couldn't live with the, with the dissonance of, you know, the, you know, we'll get into all of that later, but like that, the long list of things that were no longer working for me and mysticism to me was permission to say, it's okay. Like there's space out on the margins where you can 
keep what was beautiful, what was important to you, and you can leave what's violent and toxic and destructive behind. And it's okay to not know. And to me, that was, uh, for the people, the, the only real experience I had with Christian mysticism was the people I watched who were practicing it. And they all seemed less stressed and they all seemed uh, less worried about controlling other people. Um, yeah, and it would just seem like a permission to, hey, you can still be interested in spirituality. You can still be interested in um, in Jesus and in the way that your own that the way that that transforms you internally. Um, and yeah, I guess we all kind of need a belonging, you know, right? A place where we can, where we can still feel at home in some way. And so for me, it was as I was jumping ship, you know, it was it was like a, a little bit of a lifeboat, you know, that pulled me out. So that was helpful. Yeah, um, I guess I could have even led with this, but because I'm I'm with you, it seems like a very hard thing to kind of pin down. And that was the thing that, like, I, I'm like, I can't call myself a mystic. That feels disingenuous, which is kind of why I even hesitated to put it in the name. But having come across two definitions, one from Mike McCarg and one from Jonathan Merritt, I'll share with you guys and you, you can even say if this means anything to you. But Jonathan Merritt says he's not so much moving from right to left, but from closed to open. And as a result, he prefers the term Christian mystic. And I was like, oh, okay, that seems like a pretty simple definition. Definitely not where I would have gone with it. But that was kind of his thought. Not right to left, but just closed to open. And then Science Mike says he would define it as a spirituality which is not tied to specific language or imagery. Yes. And that's kind of just his broad definition. Yeah, I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on those. So for me, part of part of mysticism is always just like the awe and mystery of of spirituality. And you know, growing up again in a pretty conservative place in the South, mysticism was kind of like a word like meditation. You hear about it, you read about it, you know, there's references to it all over scripture, but it's kind of a dirty word because it has these Eastern connotations. And from the Christian perspective in the South, from the evangelical Southern Christian perspective, it, you know, those types of things are tempters of fate. You don't want to, you don't want to play around with that stuff too much because that's how you end up worshiping the devil. And that's a gross extreme, but it's definitely something that pulls you away. And so for me, it was always this kind of appealing thing because it felt, it felt more for me genuine than anything else, because it, it talked about the awe and mystery of God. You know, I would sit there and listen to people talk about spirituality with, with such certainty, such conviction on what does and doesn't happen. You know, they would, they would quote scripture talking about spiritual gifts and they would know for a fact that either it did happen or it didn't happen anymore. You know, you still get these or you still don't. And they just knew 
there was so much fact around like what was miracle and what wasn't and whether or not miracles happen anymore and why they didn't happen. But from my own personal experience with traveling to a few different countries, with experiencing what faith looks like in other countries, mysticism kept popping up as this thing that reinforced the mystery and awe of God and how much bigger God was from what I you know grew up hearing about. Because even though I was told it was a very big God, based on how the behaviors happened, it was really a small God that did very few things and did very limited things and only worked in very specific ways. And so for me, as I've gotten more comfortable with mysticism, as I've gotten more comfortable with the awe and the mystery of God and more comfortable with a lack of certainty, you know, and again, kind of quoting Science Mike, who I've really enjoyed this journey through us getting to know each other and also listening to him. One of the things he talks about is how your frontal lobe works, how there is, based on the way that you process, there's kind of like two sides to you that are happening in, in your brain. And for me, I've always felt that dichotomy and that tug back and forth. And I have a very skeptical side and a very mystic side. And growing up, it felt like they were always at war with each other. And I, I felt like that was kind of encouraged, like they had to be at war with each other. The Christian side had to win out over doubt, had to crush and defeat and kill and destroy doubt. Like that's even a lot of the violent language that was used about against doubts and questions and, and stuff like that. And so at the place where I'm at in life currently, these two parts of my brain are no longer at war with one another. They have equal seats next to each other in the sense of like, I can sit here and the skeptic side of me can look at certain really beautiful moments in my life that the mystic side of me is like, this is a miracle. This is something beautiful and amazing that God has done. And it's a miracle. There's no explanation. There's no good scientific reason for it. It's a miracle. The skeptical side of me can and look at that same event and still say, yeah, but there could be a scientific definition. There could be explanation behind it. Maybe it wasn't a miracle. And I'm no longer uncomfortable with either one of those things being said. And it's interesting to me because I've been having a really rough few months with work. This week has been a really terrible week or started off really terrible. And I've been having a lot of doubts of like, is God even real? Does God even exist anymore? What does God even do? And it's been interesting because that skeptical side of me is almost ministering to the mystic side of me, where the mystic side is having doubts and not having faith and not even sure what to believe in anymore. And here it is, the skeptical side of me is like, yeah, but remember these things that we still don't have answers to? Remember these moments in your life where we still don't have an explanation for was that God? Was it not God? Was it a miracle? Was it not a miracle? And so the side of me that's usually airs towards, you know, questions and skepticism and atheism is almost like encouraging me to not give up faith because I remember all the beautiful things that happened in my life in response to these events. The times whenever I would discover hope or I would get to a new place in healing for my mental health or get to a new place of being a more gracious person or just feeling an amazing connection to God that I can't really fully explain. And so it's been really interesting and really cool to see that whenever I've been struggling with doubt, 
the side of my brain that I used to try and like usurp and beat into submission, you know, and make sure it didn't have a loud voice. That side is almost what's pulling me back towards the awe and the beauty of God and the mysterious nature of God and reinforcing that God is good. God is a thing and God is loving. And so it's been really interesting. And I'm not sure if that journey kind of makes sense, but that to me has been where like Andy was saying, like mysticism for me has become this very safe space. And it's cool that I'm finally giving myself permission to be there because in these moments of serious doubt, they don't hurt as much as they used to. They're not as heavy as they used to be. Uh, And the parts of me that, again, that I used to hate or used to fight against or used to have to try and suppress, those parts of me are reminding like why faith has been beautiful and why awe and mystery have been wonderful and why like these things are still really meaningful and still really beautiful and present. And so it's, it's been an interesting change as to like how my thought life has been going since I've really just kind of leaned into this. I think so for me, I think mysticism as I moved into it became an arena where I feel like I actually started to encounter the divine through adopting like historical Christian mystic practices. I remember in college I started like adopting a practice of Lectio Divina, like like divine reading, reading through scripture slowly rather than doing the whole like Bible in a year thing, which meant that you were a better Christian and more spiritually mature than uh, than other people, an insight to to how I grew up, uh, or at least the church experience that I that I picked up growing up, like meditation and those practices. All of a sudden, once I started adopting those, the idea of God and the divine and care for creation and, and all of these things that I was taught about growing up. <coughs> And the practices that I was given, just they didn't do anything for me. Like corporate worship, youth group, I remember feeling like I loved that. But that was, I think, it's like being around people. Like that's a big deal. I just like being around people. But a lot of the things that I remember being taught was a good thing. Memorizing scripture, I never, never made me feel better. Not once. Like a lot of like the Christian commands just didn't do anything for me. But rediscovering God through mysticism and letting go of, because I think the... I think in a lot of ways, Jonathan Merritt's journey, I think is probably more similar to mine. My family was never big in the Southern Baptist Church um, like his, but it very much like his journey seems very familiar. Grew up in a really religiously conservative environment, moved to a more metropolitan area, started you know opening opening that fist and, and until you finally have a like a, an open hand. But I really identify with that language, like letting go of the language, because we think, we think in language. There's good words and there's bad words about God. There's good ways to describe God and there's bad ways to describe God, like growing up as a kid. Looking back, I felt confined by that. And so being able to open up with that, I think, really brought me into a place where I was like, okay, God, the experience of God matters now. And mysticism gave me a way to practice that and connect with really myself a lot better um yeah drawing that into the name i really really identify with the lonely part of that (laughs) that's a big part of my journey because when i was a pastor when i was in seminary serving churches like as you develop these questions i feel like the loneliness just gets worse and worse until you have an outlet for it 
Like you can only go to your closet, so to speak, and pray so much. And that does, you know, that doesn't really do much. You have to connect with people. Mm-hmm. And until you have a safe place to do that, I feel like you're not truly healthy. Mm-hmm. So for me, Lonely Mountain Mystics means coming into health. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I feel like I don't think I realized how much the deconstruction that had been happening very internally again because nothing was safe to say out loud Mm -hmm. Um, you know I remember for me reading you know it was a good kind of test when I I read Love Wins twice back to back because (laughs) it was voicing so much that I had really deeply felt for a long time and you know such a violent reaction to that which kind of told me like okay it's not it's not okay to talk about you know what you're thinking about but you know, having having this space where you can start saying things out loud has even gotten me in touch with like some of my own trauma, which has been, which still is. Just it's important. It's important to be aware of it because it's there. Either way, it's not fun to process it. But I feel like understanding that the idea that most of humanity was going to hell was a traumatic thing for me to be told as a child. And then to be told that the solution to that was kind of on me, you know, it was sort of my job to prevent this like horrific thing from happening. And that had like, that was traumatizing. And I, it still, it still shows up in the way that I process the world. And it's still something I'm healing through. So it's just interesting that I don't think I was aware of, I was aware of the things I was deconstructing as ideas, but until I started saying it out loud, I wasn't aware of the way it had been traumatic for, for my life, like for the, for the way it's still playing into, you know, the way I function. So, um, yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I, it, yeah. it's a big deal to be able to say it out loud. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's interesting that you say that because that's having that trauma as a kid or carrying that trauma around for a while was a result of actually believing in those things. Yeah. So we're different in this <laughs> because I came to realize at some point in is either Bible college or seminary, but a while ago, I came to realize that I would actually never believed in in the idea of hell. And I think part of me figuring out that was that I never cared about it that way. I think if I really believed in that, I would have felt some kind of responsibility. Because, like, how could you not? <laughs> You're kind of a terrible person if you legitimately believe that and don't, you know, feel any guilt like that. And I just think it's kind of funny that that's kind of the way... It's almost like exactly the way that that belief is supposed to operate. Maybe not that belief, but maybe the do- that doctrine is supposed to operate. Like, yeah, yeah. So I think that's just really a like a statement on the culture. So Peter Rollins has done some really interesting work around what you actually believe based on how you act. Because I think, yeah, well, I I totally hear what you're saying. You look back and you're like, well, wait, Andy had this reaction to the same thing that I was taught it sounds like he actually believed it and I didn't. I forget where I heard it, but that the entomology behind the word belief is by life. I think it's Hillary. 
Was did she say that? Yeah. Okay. So Hillary McBride, just so cool. So such a such a great way to think about that is you no, know, the way you live is is actually what you believe. Mm-hmm. The story that comes to mind is Peter Rollins standing in a in a room with a bunch of atheists, saying, "Okay, none of you believe in God." please bring up a photo of one of your loved ones and read this ancient curse over them. And like, no one would do it. It's like, oh, okay. So it's not that you like, don't really believe in any sort of like spiritual realm or anything like that. It's like choosing to say you don't. Right. Yeah, exactly. But your actions are really your true belief. Something else that was really powerful about what, you know, Andy and Will, what you guys were talking about is about the language. Because I had a really similar response, Andy, to what you were having of, you know, the the gospel that I grew up hearing about is about basically how we're all awful, how we're all these awful, dirty things. And and, and again, the language that's that's used to say, like, you know, if you went down and went to any of the churches that I grew up in or anything like that, they would tell you, you know, God is love, God is love, you know, God is a loving God. But when you look at how they would describe God in the rest of their language or how they would show their beliefs based on their actions, it didn't line up at all, man. It was, you know, we're all awful, you know, and uh, I listened to William Young, the author of The Shack, talk about this, where he was hearing about how here you have this angry father who has these awful children that are just so awful that he kind of wants to kill them and they all kind of deserve to be killed by him. We're so awful that he can't actually look at us, but we have big brother Jesus who comes and takes that beating so that way dad won't be so angry at us anymore. And it's this really toxic ideology that stems a lot from like, you have to be good enough. You have to say the right things. A Christian looks a certain way, acts a certain way, is a certain way, you know? I remember because of, you know, the, the piercings that I have and stuff, I was teaching a vacation Bible school and one of the children of the deacons came up to me and says, you know, my daddy told me you're a fag. And like, because I didn't look the right way, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the right appearance. So for me, it was really scarring because I know of a lot of fathers like that. You know, there are fathers like that that share my last name, that if you don't do everything just right, wrath is coming. But maybe you can do things just right. Or maybe maybe if wrath is coming at somebody else, if you jump in front, maybe you can take that wrath so they don't have to. It, it's just to me that 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 toxicity that came with it, that, that came with the language of it, as I started to strip it away and just focus on like, how do I experience God? How do I experience all of that? I would say probably for me up until, I'd say probably up until two to three years ago, I don't think I was ever really a Christian because for me, though I, you know, got saved, so to speak, at a young age and I said the prayer, I said that prayer like a million times because I was worried I said it wrong. I was worried that if I didn't do it the right way that God wasn't going to let me in and I had to do it perfect. And how do I know I didn't do it perfect last time? So got to keep doing it. And for me, up until recently, like God wasn't allowed to visit certain things. God wasn't allowed to go to certain places because if, if God is a father and if fathers are abusive like he was described to me as being and 
if all fathers kind of suck, well then God must suck and God sounded pretty abusive growing up. And so getting to a space now of just getting to a point where I was willing to, to let go and meditate on this idea of what if, what if the God that I grew up hearing about in church wasn't real? What if the God that I told all my friends about, what if the God that I shared with everyone else, what if that was the real God and that God was love? And as I became a father and have connected, the metaphor of God as a father is now the most profoundly beneficial metaphor where I was the most profoundly destructive for a long time. For me, it's so much more amazing and beautiful to sit there and meditate on what it means to be a loving a loving parent what it means to try and embody love as much as you can and realizing that if if god is good and if god is a good parent then at the very least, God is capable of doing these things that I'm doing, but even better. And so now I'm connecting with the scripture that I read. I'm connecting with the red letters in ways that I never experienced before. I could memorize the heck out of scripture and I could say all of it at the right time. And I could, I could, you know, argue with an atheist, like nobody's business, but like now I'm connecting with scripture or in with the words of Jesus in an intimate way that I've never experienced before. And it's amazing. It's been really profound because the language has changed and I've let go of a lot of language and I'm focusing more on just my own experiences, on my own spiritual health, on my own mental health, on my own well-being. And, and like, Will, like you were saying, it's becoming more comfortable with myself. It's discovering more of who I am. You shared with us this really great quote of what if the search for God is really just a search for yourself or something along those lines. Let me pull that up right now. Yeah, man. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I, so the, the quote was, I saw Corey pig post it on an Instagram post that no longer exists anymore, but it was a quote from roommates. I searched for God and found only myself. I searched for myself and found only God. Mm. And, uh, come on, Rumi. Yeah, come on. Yeah, <laughs> I also just watched that Ram Dass documentary. How's it? Oh, it was. It was. I don't know. As in documentaries go, it was not great, but <laughs> it's. It was pretty interesting. He's such an interesting person, yeah, though. Yeah, yeah. I don't know much, but I'm interested it's, based on. Based on basically this whole testimony of Vishnu Das. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean. Cause he's really big into oneness and he's really big into compassion being kind of the way that you enter the presence of the divine. Yeah, I'm really, I mean, also he's both of those things. So. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he also uses a lot more tools yeah. to, uh, right. to experience an ego death and yes. stuff like that. I'm aware. Um, that dude loves mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's really interesting. And it was even, so a weird thing is like, it's one thing, it's a bag of Christmas <laughs> ornaments like tipped over at your feet. Like, that's going to keep happening. <laughs> the ornaments are encroaching. <laughs> Sorry, bro. No, 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 you're good. I think that's that's a good that's good. Um, one thing I was one thing I was thinking when I like I guess we I guess I'm going to talk about this now. Um, when I was watching this documentary was listening to his draw towards compassion and how his religiously his 
existence is completely decentralized. And I remember and what I mean by that is that it's no longer coming from like just one tradition. And I remember thinking like, and even really justifying the argument that, well, like true Christianity is the best form of compassion, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but I'm just so averse <laughs> to like absolute statements like that any longer mm-hmm. that uses constricting language like that to yeah. absolutely that's not the case. Uh, so I've never met the guy. I guess Ram Dass could actually be a jerk in real life, but I don't believe it for a second. Um, just to see somebody who is has spent so much time serving like underprivileged people um, and really devoting his life to that <clears throat> like to see a picture of what I was told Jesus was like through a person who is influenced not only by Jesus but by Buddha mm-hmm. and, and, and by Hindu tradition like I thought that was really fascinating as I'm realizing that I'm more of a pluralist than I thought I once was. (laughs) No, that's when I was thinking about the things I appreciate about mysticism, that was one of them, that truth is truth wherever you find it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be branded correctly. Right. You know, like on a pre-approved list of like, these are the things that are true. And even if you find them in other places, if they're not branded correctly, then they're not true. Yeah, so like I wrote down like it doesn't require acceptance of belief statements and it's open to wisdom from wherever you find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Mysticism for me has been something really interesting where it's felt again kind of growing up more like Pentecostal and like very spiritual, like speaking in tongues, all of that kind of stuff. The focus on spirituality of mysticism feels very natural to me. It feels, though, like an older, deeper root, Mm. and it feels somehow more true, but also feels more broad than just what I happen to be primarily brought up in. And man, we traveled around to several different churches in the area. Like We were like small New Hampshire, so there were probably three or four churches, some more Pentecostal than others. Some were just straight up evangelical, North American Christian. And yeah, we were comfortable at all of them. I went to several because I had friends at all of them. Yeah, it was an interesting, interesting experience. I look back on it, and I'm really happy that I was exposed to the stuff that I was. I feel very at home talking about maybe even some more obscure Bible stories with, with other people. And it's helped me kind of pull apart or deconstruct some things, knowing kind of where to go to look for some of these things. has actually been an aid. And so, yeah, I'm actually very grateful where I am now, I feel very much sort of includes and transcends where I came from. So. You had mentioned that like, as you dug deeper into mysticism, that it became, it was both deeper and wider mm-hmm. than you expected it to be. For me, as I've done that, when I, I've always said things like God is bigger or God is big, or I, one of my favorite descriptions for God is most high for me, as I feel like I've gotten more uh, comfortable with where I'm at spiritually, that I f- I'm finally saying those things in the most honest way I've ever said them before. Because I think that even though I said God is bigger, almighty, most powerful, most high, whatever, God was very small because he only did certain things at certain times and only function in certain ways. And it didn't really feel very authentic when I would say it. But like for me now, when I think of God as bigger, which is 
it's kind of a awkwardly ironic thing because I actually have the phrase God is bigger tattooed across my chest backwards. So when I look in the mirror, I can read it. But up until recently, so roughly 15 years after getting that tattoo, I'm finally at a place where it's like, oh yeah, God is bigger. So when you're talking about like experience, the depth and how broad it is, would you say like that's been a similar experience for you or um, has it been a different experience? It's interesting as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking, yeah, it actually takes some intellectual honesty, which I also really appreciate about mysticism. That is just like, hey, we're going to be honest about what we don't know. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. And what like, we- finally, somebody said that. We have no idea. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so even to say God is bigger or the most high, like somehow even just saying that, defining it is bringing it down we have to agree that we don't know what that means like we have to agree that it's it's bigger than that like whatever language we can use to to describe is is just bigger and grander and greater yeah Yeah. i was to say that's that's a big in like historical like christian mysticism that's a big a big focal point of it is negative theology Mm. is like like a lot of the eastern tradition is almost well not almost is for sure more comfortable with defining what God is not rather Mm -hmm. than what God is Mm -hmm. and I remember when I was learning about that I just remember thinking like holy that's a way safer way to talk about it (laughs) like that just makes a lot more sense (laughs) and I remember thinking that was great um the most difficult part of this whole thing with recording with you guys is that the Southern like church going me was about, amen, yes, yeah. brother, preach. Pre- and, and I can't. Just so. <laughs> so I love what you guys are saying. Sorry, please keep going. Yeah, no. Yeah, I'm just, I'm totally on board. It's like in order to, in order to fully embrace the idea that God is bigger, God is greater, um, you have to somehow disbelieve <clears throat> what comes to your mind. Yep. Yeah. Like you're just, you're already defining it. God is bigger. God is greater than, than God. what you're already defining yeah. it. Like God's also mm. not bigger, not greater. Yeah. It's, mm. it's this whole and, thing. I don't even, yeah, I'm not changing my tattoo no matter what you say about God is That's not fine. bigger. So, uh, you watch your mouth. <laughs> so I like, Oh, uh, go, go. It's a very dumb joke. The hardest thing about me for recording is when Devin's talking about how he views God as the most high and just imagining God <laughs> relaxing on a couch, big old blunt, eyes red, and be like, you know what? You know how we have horses? Well, make them super tall. We're going to call it a giraffe. It's going to have a 16-foot-long neck. When they get born, they're going to drop 20 feet. They're not going to die from that. They're gonna be painted like a leopard. It's... <laughs> and then angels being like, "Yeah, okay." So, wow, we is that we like cut him off? Let's let's go Tolkien just for a second. Is that like when Peter Jackson walks into a room and it's like, "Guys, I have it." Bunny slay. <laughs> What's that? What are you talking? From from the Hobbit. Oh my gosh! Yeah, where oh, yes. where Radagast <laughs> has a sleigh. 
that's pulled by rabbits. <laughs> that's right. How, yeah. Are you high? How did you make the? I mean, I see how you made the jump. This is something completely yeah. ridiculous. Oh my god, you. that's so funny. You. Okay. Bunny sled. Bunny sled. I need to read the books. What are these books again? The, no, those, oh, it's not oh, in the books. It's not in the books. Yeah. It's not in. That's why. What movie so, is this? <laughs> the Hobbit. Did you have you not Y'all seen the Hobbit? The, no. No. Oh, oh, that's just, well. That's actually no. I'm actually excited there. by that. I would love to watch that with you. I went to see what was the last. What was the last? Um, Return of the King. That one. Yeah. I went. I paid money to see it. Mm-hmm. I still haven't seen it. Oh. I fell asleep more than once. Uh, uh, I fell asleep during the endings, and it was still ending when I woke up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it might be because you hadn't seen the first two. Like that's that could be a. I think I've seen at least one of them. I don't know which yeah. one. Let me first. I know I've seen at least one the whole way through. Yeah. But it's also okay, like the that. The first way one was still the best out of all six now. Yeah. They cut the the Hobbit's three movies. Some there's a bunch of fan edits that are cut the whole thing down to like two hours. <laughs> That's awesome. Because <laughs> they just cut out all the junk. Yeah. Yeah. That's why when Andy uh, told us that his brother consulted on the Hobbit, Will was like, "Oh, there's a bunch of people really mad at your brother." <laughs> <laughs> Did you say something like, oh, I, I, I know. He's <laughs> like, well, they didn't listen to him. I, think was right, yeah. I was going to say, I guarantee whatever they did that deviated from the text was not his idea. <laughs> that probably would have been my idea. Let's do a bunny sled, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> it would be hilarious. Oh, I hear what you're saying. And then they put it in. But bunny sled. <laughs> I paid my brother a lot of money for that recommendation. Okay, I'm still paying him back. Oh man, I don't remember where we're, we were. You're gonna you're gonna say something uh, before I before a tangent before bunny sled. Yeah, I don't remember now. No intentional process, no sober process created giraffes. It was either high god or evolution. I like that. Those are your two things. Yeah, there is no God. Only two things. (laughs) Only two things. I was listening to Hillary McBride talk on the Liturgist podcast, and she was talking about the difference between having a fear response or having a curious response. And this is something I'm like deep in the midst of right now, just in my everyday life, getting curious about things, asking more questions. And I find that mysticism is, because of its honesty, is kind of a helpful lens in terms of, instead of responding to questions with fear and lockdown, you know what I mean? You double down on whatever you had just because you're afraid of this unknown thing. But if you, right, but if you can get used to sitting in a discomfort and just recognizing it, practicing a little bit of like, okay, let's slowly move through this. And what if instead of being afraid and, and responding with like a, th- that this is a threat, I could respond with curiosity and that to me is like it's something it's just something I'm much more interested in I, I it's like it's that that's the person I want to become in all aspects of my life so I feel like you know in in spirituality I don't want it to be different you know I don't want it to be a double down I want it to be a opening up in in a sense of you know curiosity 
and at the end of the day, I think it kind of betrays like, do you believe in an angry God or do you believe in a loving God? Because, you know, angry God, of course you're afraid. Of course you're afraid that every step you're going to make is going to be the wrong one. But loving God is, everything's an invitation. Sure, come and see. Like, let's, I don't know, let's find out. Or, or let's not find out, but let's have an experience together and just see where it takes us and believe in love and connection more than having the right answers. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode. A quick note on season one, we're going to be talking a lot about questions that we've personally had over the years and how we're thinking differently about things these days. But our desire is that as time goes on, you'll begin to hear more and more voices, not just ours. We have a ton planned for season one and beyond, and we hope you'll be a part of it. So to that end, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your stories and talk about some of the questions that you have. So if you would like to help us out, give feedback, or just want to start a conversation, there are a bunch of easy ways to reach out. You can always email us at hosts at lonelymountainmystics.com or check out our website, lonelymountainmystics.com. You can also follow us on Twitter too. If you want to support the podcast, you can go to our website and click on the link, become a patron. This will take you to our Patreon page where you can donate to the work that we do. Finally, if you enjoy the podcast, leaving a review also goes a long way. Thanks again, everyone. We love you and we'll see you next time.